Islam and Revelation, and a historic look at Protestant eschatological thought on the rise and fall of Islam. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3G5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. Introduction to Islam and Revelation by Reg Barrel, President of Stillwater's Revival Books. Considering the prominent place in Scripture that God apportions to revealing Islam as one of the most significant anti-Christian forces in history, and in the light of the rise and progress of Islam in our day, Stillwater's Revival Books presents the following information to all serious-minded Christians with the hope that it will be a great encouragement to your faith. There are two great anti-Christian religious systems of deceit revealed in the book of Revelation. The great Western Antichrist of Roman Catholicism, Revelation 17 and 18, and the great Eastern Antichrist of Islam, Revelation 9. This has been the majority position of historic Protestant interpretation, historicism, for centuries, as all the most faithful reformers and all the Reformation creeds and confessions attest. For example, the illustrious John Calvin proclaimed that Mohammed and the Pope are the two horns of Antichrist. The following six extracts on Islam's place in prophecy are taken from five historicist books which Stillwater's Revival Books has published over the past years. See swrb.com for the full printed editions of each title. These extracts not only clearly show that the rise and fall of Islam is prophesied in Scripture, but they also give us one of the most powerful testimonies to God's sovereignty over all His creatures and all their actions, in all of the Word of God. In fact, when the historicist position is carefully studied, the prophetic fulfillment in the case of Islam and Revelation, chapter 9, is seen to be so striking and well-tested that even advocates of other approaches who are adamant in their rejection of the historicist system of interpretation have admitted the convincing nature of this particular identification. Steve Gregg, commenting on Revelation 9, 1-6, through 6, in Revelation 4 Views, page 176. We hope that you will prayerfully consider the information you are about to hear and that this tape will help to open the door to many other marvelous truths that God has for you in His Word. The following six excerpts on Islam and Revelation comprise 105 printed pages and are taken from 1. Holy Apocalyptica, or A Commentary on the Apocalypse, Critical and Historical, including also an examination of the chief prophecies of Daniel. 
1862 by E.B. Elliott. Volume 1, pages 446 through 469. 2. Lectures upon the Principal Prophecies of the Revelation, 1814 by Alexander Malaud, pages 147 through 163. 3. Notes on the Apocalypse, 1870 by David Steele, pages 114 through 116. 4. A dissertation on the prophecies that have been fulfilled are now fulfilling or will hereafter be fulfilled relative to the great period of 1260 years, the papal and Mohammedan apostasies, the tyrannical reign of Antichrist or the infidel power and the restoration of the Jews. Two volumes, 1811, by George Faber, volume 1, pages 177 through 212. Volume 2, pages 269 through 288. 5. Dissertation on the prophecies which have remarkably been fulfilled and at this time are fulfilling in the world. 2 volumes, 1817, by Thomas Newton. Volume 2, pages 222 through 232. The following excerpt on Islam and Revelation is taken from Hore Apocalyptica by E.B. Elliot, Volume 1, pages 446 through 469. Outburst, Progress, and Limits of the First Bull as Predicted and Fulfilled The family of Mohammed was of the princely house of the Koryish, who at the time of his birth in the latter part of the 6th century had been for some three or four generations hereditary governors of Mecca. Footnote. Gibbon 4, 246. End of footnote. And holders, too, of the keys of the Kaaba in that city, the then central spot of the religious worship of the tribes of the vast peninsula of Arabia. Footnote. Halam, Middle Ages 2, 162. And the Reverend H. Forrester's learned work on the geography of Arabia, a clear and satisfactory view is given of its colonization, grounded on evidence scriptural, classical, and that of modern researches. He traces it from six different sources as follows. 1. Cush and his sons, who, before the confusion of tongues, colonized the coast of Bahrain and Oman, along the Persian Gulf and the northeast part of Hadramaut. 2. Joktan the fourth from Shem, brother to Peleg, in whose days Genesis 10.25 was the confusion of tongues, whose settlements occupied the interior Nejd, and thence in time extended to Hadramaut and Yemen, where the Hamurites preserved the name of Hamur, grandson to Joktan. 3. Ishmael, whose twelve sons were heads of twelve tribes and their names still traceable through the peninsula, the chief being the Nabthakans and Kedarites, the latter the acknowledged progenitors of the Koryish and Mohammed. These, under the general names of Ishmaelites or Hagarines, stretch from the wilderness of Sin and Sinai across the neck of the Arabian Peninsula so as at length to invade the Cushites of Bahrain. 4. Abraham
Abraham's sons by Keturah, who intermixed with Ishmael across the neck of Arabia, the most remarkable tribe being the Midianites, the Sabacans, mentioned in Ezekiel 23, another. 5. Esau, whose descendants under the names of Edomites and Saracens, the latter Mr. F. thinks, meaning the children of Sarah. See Niebuhr's and Valesius's Different Solutions, page 439, note 5, Supra. Occupied the desert nearest to Judea, among them Amalek. On Amalek's destruction, it would seem that a division fleeing under Omar made a final settlement in Arabia Felix, where they were known as Homerites. 6. The tribes of Ad, son of Uz, son of Aram, son of Shem, according to Arabian tradition. The Holy Scriptures does not mention them. It is of these last that the famous Hamaritic inscription speaks, which Mr. Foster considers himself to have deciphered, but whether correctly or not, is, I believe, still sub judice. End of footnote. After his birth, his father and grandfather died, and then the governorship of Mecca, headship of the tribe, and keys of the Kaaba passed into the hands of another branch of the family. Thus, Mohammed, as he grew up an orphan and destitute, found himself forced to enter into service for his support, and in that character trafficked for some years in the markets of Arabia and Syria. The thoughts were even then working in his mind which were to raise him to an eminence, a bad eminence indeed, immeasurably higher than that of Prince of Mecca. Brooding darkly over the fall of his family, the idea of a new and false superstition was suggested to his mind by the father of lies, whereby he might more than recover its ancient dignity and power. Withdrawing each year to the secret cave of Hera, Three miles from Mecca, he there consulted and listened to the spirit of fraud or of enthusiasm whose abode, says Gibbon, was not in the heavens but in the mind of the enthusiast. Footnote. Gibbon 4.260. End of footnote. And came to suppose himself commissioned as the prophet of God. The pestilential fumes from the pit of the abyss worked successfully within him. At length he declared his mission, first privately, three years after publicly. For a while the elders of the city and uncles of Mohammed affected to despise his presumption. They chased him ignominiously from Mecca. His flight marks the era of Hegira, A.D. 622. But soon fortune changed. After an exile of seven years, the fugitive missionary was enthroned as the prince as well as the prophet of his native country. Footnote. Gibbon 4, 308. End of footnote. And as leader to of his armies, according to the commission which he declared to be entrusted to him against idolaters and unbelievers, whether in Arabia or foreign lands, 
His death prevented his fulfilling his mission against the latter. But he marked them out as his followers, especially the Mariolatrists and saint worshippers of the Roman Empire. Footnote. In the Quran, chapter 5, the Christians of the Roman Empire were distinctly charged with worshipping the Virgin Mary as God. And in chapter 9, it is said of the priests and monks specifically, Very many of the priests and monks devour the substance of men in vanity and obstruct the way of God. Sayyid's Quran 1, 141, 2-8 explains the first charge against the priests as having reference to their fraudulent gains by the sale, exhibition, and false miracles attached to relics. What has been already said, pages 331, 408, 414, might well suffice to justify this charge of idolatry, but I add the following as referring to the exact epoch we speak of, and as what Gibbon could not omit in his sketch of the rise of Mohammedism. The Christians of the 7th century had insensibly relapsed into a semblance of paganism. Their public and private vows were addressed to the relics and images that disgraced the temples of the East, and the throne of the Almighty was darkened by a cloud of martyrs, saints, and angels, the objects of popular veneration. Given 4, 261. The Greeks have been everywhere worsted by the Arabs, said one of his officers to the Emperor Herasilus, because they have for a long time walked unworthy of their Christian profession and have corrupted their holy religion, and so on. So Theophanes, Chronager, page 276, cited by Hales, Cronall, 4, 331. End of footnote. And the Caliphs, his successors and vicars, were not slow to enter on the careers so marked out to them. And how can the world be described so graphically and truly as under the imagery of the apocalyptic prophecy before us? 1. There is indicated as well by the hieroglyphic itself as by the words of explanation accompanying that to the Arab cavalry hordes emerging from the smoke of the hellish exhalation, there would be opened a fearful career of conquest over Roman Christendom, one in which, as just hinted before, they would fly, as it were, with locust wings, destroy what opposed them with the strength of lion's teeth, and torment the subjugated Christian inhabitants. Footnote. The apocalyptic locus commission was against Greek words. So, verses 4, 6, and 10. In Dion Cassius 77, 9, I observe that the same insulated phrase is used of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire distinctively. End of footnote. As with the poison of a scorpion's sting. And was there then a correspondence with this and the facts of the subsequent Saracenic history? It was in the year 629 that the Saracens under Mohammed himself 
first issued from the desert into Syria with proclamation of war against Christendom. They appeared and they retired. It was but the omen of what was to follow. But in 636, very shortly after his death, they returned under the Caliph Omar to prosecute their mission in earnest. And behold, within less than three years, Syria was subdued. When Damascus had fallen, and then Jerusalem, the unhappy Emperor Heraclius, with tears of anguish, bade farewell to the Syrian province. He saw that it was lost to his crown irretrievably. The Patriarch of Jerusalem, yet more unhappy, had to attend the victor Caliph through it. He muttered as he passed on, The abomination of desolation is in the holy place. Footnote. Given for 413. End of footnote. As soon as if to remind the Christian remnant of the fact, there resounded the voice of the Musin from a mosque erected on the site of Solomon's temple, which, except with brief intermission during the reign of the Crusaders, has since then never ceased. Footnote. The Musin began with Mohammedism. He is mentioned expressly in the capitulation of Jerusalem. The Musin said Omar that calls the faithful to prayers shall not stand on the steps of the Church of Constantine. Maud on History 1, 431 The menorah, it may be observed, was not erected till 690 A.D. and then first at the great mosque of Damascus. The Herbalit 3, 157. Hence the Musin's standing in Omar's time on the church steps. End of footnote. The subjugation of Egypt followed quickly on that of Syria. Then, some twenty or forty years after, that of the African province. Then, at the beginning of the eighth century, that of Spain. All this within the limits of Roman Christendom and contemporaneously. Though without those limits and consequently without the sphere of the apocalyptic prefigurative vision, that of Persia in the second quarter of the seventh century and that of the northwest India and of Transoxiana at the commencement of the eighth. Let us take an exemplification of the rapidity and extent of their conquests and destructions to historical statements. The one, that in the ten years of Omar's Caliphate, from 634 to 644, the Saracens had reduced to his obedience 36,000 cities or castles, destroyed 4,000 churches, and built 1,400 mosques, for the exercise of the religion of Mohammed. The other, that at the end of the first century of the Hegira, the Arabian Empire had been extended to 200 days' journey from east to west and reached from the confines of Tartary and India to the shores of the Atlantic. Over all which ample space, says Gibbon, the progress of the Mohammedan religion diffused a general resemblance of manners and of opinions. Footnote. Gibbon 4, 
361 and 501, and a footnote. Over all which ample space we may add, the venom of the scorpion sting of their conquerors was made to rankle in the breasts of the subject Christians. For indeed the bitter contempt and hatred flowing out from the Moslem faith towards them could not but be felt perpetually. It was marked in the very terms of appellation, Christian dogs and infidels. Footnote. Ye Christian dogs, ye know your option, the Quran, the tribute, or the sword. Such was Khaled's characteristic address to the Romans before the battle of Asmodeen. Such near 200 years after that in the letter of the Caliph Haran al-Rashid to the Emperor Nisiphorus, Haran al-Rashid, commander of the faithful, to Nisiphorus the Roman dog, given 9, 390, 10, 54. In later years, it has been the same from the Turks and from the same cause. What care I whether the dog eat the hog or the hog eat the dog was the vizier's Kuyperli's answer to the French ambassador on his informing him of Louis XIV's victories over the Spaniards. Eaton's Turkey, page 110. End of footnote. The enactments of the capitulations granted them were their everyday remembrances of it. Deprived of the use of arms like the helots of old, and with tribute enforced as their annual life redemption tax, with a different dress enjoining them from their masters, and a more humble mode of riding, an obligation to rise up differentially in the presence of the meanest Moslem, and to receive, and gratuitously, entertain for a certain time, whosoever of them, when on a journey, might require it. Such were the marks of personal degradation ordained in the capitulations. And then, in token of the degradation of their religion, that to which, notwithstanding all their superstitions, they clung with fond attachment, there was the prohibition to build new churches, to chime the bells in those retained by them, or to refuse admission into them to the scoffing Moslem, though they regarded his presence as defilement. Footnote. The above is extracted from the capitulation of Jerusalem granted by Omar, which was the basis and prototype of most of the subsequent capitulations granted to Christian subjects. The document is given by al Rakhidi and copied into the modern universal history, 1, 428, and 429. Compare given 9, 499, who speaks of these degrading enactments as enforced 200 years after. End of footnote. Add to which the inducements to apostasy operating to an incalculable extent on the young and thoughtless in families more specially and then the penalty of death against the apostates returning to the Christian faith, the insults to, to Christian females, and thousands undefinable injuries of oppression. And how could it be but the bitterness of their lot should be felt, and the poison rankle within them, yet more even than in other days with the Jewish captives in Babylon, and so as to make life itself almost a burden. 
Footnote. And in those days shall the men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. Verse 6. A statement of which the meaning is made clear by the parallel one in Jeremiah 8.3, where it is said of the Jews taken captive to Babylon, and death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of them that remain of this evil family, which remain in all the places whither I have driven them. And so again, Job 3.20. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery, and life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures, which rejoice exceedingly when they can find the grave. It is a strong proverbial expression of great wretchedness. Under the judgment from the sons of Ishmael, says the pseudo-methodius Paterensis, cited page 439, supra, Latin words, BPM 3732, Latin words, and the footnote. And now we shall be better prepared to consider Secondly, what is said of the locusts having a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue he hath his name Apollyon. I have already explained this as the opener of the pit of the abyss and chief of destroyers, Satan. Footnote. Mead, while explaining this angel as Satan, suggests Aboda, a name then common to Arab princes by the Red Sea, as perhaps alluded to in the appellative Abaddon. End of footnote. Or perhaps one of Satan's angels. Footnote. In Apocalypse 12:7, we find noticed the dragon's angels as well as God's. End of footnote. The spirit of evil that like the lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. Footnote. 1 Kings 22, 21, and 23. It is well to remember that the spirits of evil, as of good, have attached to them an individuality of work and office as well as of person. As to the name here noticed, it simply marks character, just as in Mark 5, 9. Our name is Legion, for we are many. In the Nimrod sculptures, when a king with his bow bent is going forth to battle, a winged spirit with his bow bent is often represented over him. End of footnote. Had inspired Mohammed, and of whom Mohammed, and after him his caliphs or vicars. Footnote. Gibbon 9, 329. And a footnote. Were but the mouth and instrument. So interpreted, we see in this intimation not merely a singular fact predicted, but one of important bearing on all the main points of the prophecy. For the prediction was to this effect, that wheresoever the Arab locusts might travel in their career of conquest, there they would carry the false religion of Mohammed with them. There, for however long, be ruled by its laws and actuated by its spirit. 
Now this was not a result necessary or to have been anticipated a priori, by no means. The Gothic invaders that conquered and settled in the Roman Empire embraced almost immediately after the religion of the conquered and so were rapidly amalgamated into one people with them. The same was the case with the Saxons afterwards, the Hungarians of the 10th century and other invaders. But as the prediction thus understood noted the fact respecting the symbolic locus, so in the case of the Saracens was it fulfilled. Through all their conquests in countries their most remote, the Quran, the book dictated by the spirit of the abyss to Muhammad, was the code of religion and of law that governed them. Footnote. It is not the propagation but the permanency of his religion that deserves our wonder. The same pure and perfect impression which he engraved at Mecca and Medina is preserved after the revolutions of twelve centuries by the Indian, African, and Turkish proselytes of the Quran. Gibbon 9, 350. Footnote. And the cliffs invested with civil power were invested simply in virtue of their religious character and office as caliphs or vicars of the false prophet. And hence, in fact, the perpetuation of their character through this period as destroyers to Christians, the same of the spirit of the abyss their king was destroyer. Such it appeared in the doctrine of the book, such on the field of battle, and when we consider not only the destruction of bodily life resulting, but also the destruction of soul from the poisonous doctrines of Mohammedism, surely the suitableness will, by all, be allowed of the name thus given him. Oh, what a contrast! It is one that even given cannot help alluding to. Foot, footnote 9, 295. End of footnote. What a contrast in character, doctrine, and results to mankind between the spirit that animated Mohammed and his Quran and the spirit of him and his gospel against whom Mohammed set himself the Prince of Princes, the Lord Jesus, the one the spirit of peace and salvation, the other the Abaddon, the destroyer. Footnote. We may compare Daniel 8:23 and 24, a king of fierce countenance, and that shall destroy wonderfully. A description very similar, though the Hebrew word there is not Hebrew word as here and similarly, I believe, in reference to Mohammedism. End of footnote. 3. But there is a term and limits prescribed to these locusts, a limit as to effect, a limit as to time. They were not to kill the men of Christendom, so as were the agents under the second woe. Footnote. Apocalypse 9, 15, and 18. End of footnote. Example, not to annihilate them as a political Christian body, but only to torment them. Moreover, while injuring the men, they were very singularly not to injure the grass or trees. Also, their tormenting and destroying was limited to the defined period of 150 days. These are the next points for investigation. 1. And first, 
as to the limit respecting the grass and the trees, strange as such restriction on the scorpion locusts must appear. It is commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth. Footnote. Greek words. The word Greek word includes corn. So Matthew 13:26. Greek words. So again, Genesis 3:18-9-3 September. End of footnote. Neither any green thing, neither any tree, yet had it its precise counterpart in the Quran and in the actions of the otherwise destroying Saracens. The often quoted order of the Clef Abubakar issued to the Saracen hordes on their first invasion of Syria, destroyed no palm trees, nor any fields of corn, cut down no fruit trees, nor do any mischief to cattle, was an order originating not from the individual character of the cliff, but from the precept of Muhammad. Footnote. So Gibbon 9, 311, speaking of the siege of Tayaf, 60 miles southeast of Mecca, he says that Muhammad violated his own laws by the extirpation of the fruit trees. It is curious that while I am writing, a modern illustration of this law should meet my eyes. In the evening mail of December 25, 1839, there occurs in the correspondence from Circassia the following passage. My host and a man from Semez were disputants, the latter maintaining the impropriety of burning the corn the former is necessity in the present emergency. Our guest said, It is contrary to the injunction of our book, the Quran. H.A. First Edition Compare the merciful ordinance in Deuteronomy 20.19 For what was dictated by policy in the Quran was dictated by mercy as well in the law from Sinai. When thou shalt besiege a city a long time, in making war against it to take it, thou shalt not destroy the trees thereof by forcing an axe against them. For thou mayest eat of them, and thou shalt not cut them down. For the tree of the field is man's life. Only the trees which thou knowest, that they be not trees for meat, them thou shalt destroy and cut them down. End of footnote. It was dictated to him not by motives of mercy, but of policy. And its policy was soon evidenced in the rapid formation of flourishing kingdoms out of the countries conquered by the Saracens, a formation that, but for this, could never have been accomplished. But what I wish here to impress on the reader's mind is its distinctiveness as a characteristic of the Saracens. For let him but mark the direct contrast that they herein presented to other conquests and conquerors. For example, in the invasions of the Goths, Huns, and Vandals, the desolation of the trees and herbage was a striking feature. Footnote. I shall not be easily persuaded, said Gibbon, 6.21, that it was a common practice of the Vandals to extirpate the olives and other fruit trees of a country where they intended to settle. But his authorities are against him, and his own narrative embodies the fact. 
See pages 377 and 378 supra. End of footnote. The Greek word, or desert places, that abounded in the provinces conquered by them were long a memorial of it. Footnote. See the strong statements to this effect from Muratori and others in Robertson's Charles V, Volume 1, Note 5e. End of footnote. Hence, in the apocalyptic prediction of the Goths, the wasting of the vegetation by them is made a distinct feature of prophecy. In that of the Saracens now before us, there is a foreshowing of the direct reverse. Footnote. Theophanes in his Chronographia notices that the administration of Persia after its conquest by the Saracens was regulated by an actual survey not only of men, but of cattle and plants of the earth. Greek words, given 9, 375. The act was characteristic. End of footnote. 2. Further, as to the idolatrous men of Roman Christendom, there is a limit in the commission of the scorpion locusts of this woe to the effect that they should not kill or politically annihilate. Footnote. Compare Hosea 13.1. End of footnote. But only torment them. And this, too, must surely seem most singular. But it had its fulfillment. When the reader consults any carefully written history of the Saracens, he will be almost sure to find a notice of their successes, followed by a notice of certain remarkable checks that they received after a while. The consequence of which was the preservation of Christendom both in the East and in the West. And he will find intermingled with these statements expressions of surprise and admiration at checks such as these occurring after so long and irresistible a progress of success. Footnote. See Gibbon 10.2. The calm historian who strives to follow the rapid course of the Saracens must study to explain by what means the church and state were saved from this impending and, as it should seem, inevitable danger. And Halam, Middle Ages, 2, 169, these conquests which astonish the careless and superficial are less perplexing to a calm inquirer than their cessation, the loss of half the Roman Empire than the preservation of the rest. Also, Ibid, page 3. End of footnote. Thus, as regards the Eastern Empire. Twice did the Saracens, in the pride and plenitude of their power, attack the vital part of that division of Christendom by besieging Constantinople. First, in the seven-year siege, which lasted from 668 to 675. Secondly, in the years 716 to 718, where Leo the Isaurian was on the imperial throne. Alike on either occasion, they were unsuccessful and obliged to retire, defeated and disgraced, as they had never been before. Similarly, in the West, after that the busy Gothic Empire in Spain had been all but destroyed, A.D. 711, in the fatal Battle of Xeres, 
and when its remnant and only germ of revivification being with Palio in the mountains of Asturias, the Moorish Saracens, flushed with victory, attacked in order completely to destroy that remnant. Their former success forsook them. They were twice repulsed with great loss and gave up the enterprise. Again, and yet more remarkably, in the year 732, when Abdelarman and his Moorish Saracens have prolonged a victorious line of march above 1,000 miles from Gibraltar to the lawyer, adjudging to the obedience of the prophet whatever yet remained of France or Europe, and in the full confidence of surmounting all opposition, either of nature or of man. Footnote. Gibbon 10, 21 and 23. Sismondi 2, 48. In volume 9, page 483, Gibbon thus notices further the design of the Moorish conqueror Musa against all Christendom to extinguish in Gaul and Italy the declining kingdoms of the Franks and Lombards to preach the unity of God on the altar of the Vatican, thence subduing the barbarians of Germany to follow the course of the Danube to the Oxen Sea, to overthrow the Greek or Roman Empire of Constantinople, and return from Europe to Asia to unite his new acquisitions with Antioch and the province of Syria. End of footnote. At that crisis, when, as Sismondi declares, it appeared impossible for France to avoid subjugation, in the which case all Europe would probably have fallen, and as regards our own island, the interpretation of the Quran be now taught in the schools of Oxford, and her pulpits demonstrate to a circumcised people the truth and sanctity of the revelation of Mohammed. At that crisis, a bulwark was raised up most unexpectedly by the Franks under Charles Martel. The Saracens recoiled, broken and discomfited, from the blows of him who is called the hammer of Western Christendom, and Europe owes its existence, its religion and its liberty to his victory. Historians, I repeat, agree in speaking of these deliverances of Christendom as events of which, at the time, there could have been no reasonable anticipation. But to the student of the Apocalypse, who has thus far followed and agreed with me, it will appear all accounted for. It was said to the Saracen locusts that they should not kill nor politically annihilate the united church and state of Christendom, either in the east or in any one of the kingdoms of the West, however scorpion-like they might mutilate the political body and torment the men, its constituents. In attempting to annihilate them, they exceeded their commission and were repulsed. 3. Once more there was a restriction as to time. It was to a period of 5 months or 150 days. Footnote. For 30 days it went to a month. If we compare Genesis 7:11 and 8:3:4, it will appear that 150 days are the equivalent of five months. End of footnote. That their commission was confined 
to injure the inhabitants of Roman Christendom. In order to the understanding of which restrictive clause, a clause that will necessarily detain us some length of time, it is important, indeed essential, that the reader should bear in mind two things. First, that the period noted is not that of the duration of the symbolic locus, but of their aggressively striking, injuring, and tormenting the men of Roman Christendom with their lion-like teeth and scorpion stings. Footnote. Verse 5. And it was given them that they, the apostatized Christians, should be tormented by them five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when it has struck a man. And in those days men shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Verse 10. And their power is to injure, Greek word, the men five months. The period seems to me to be twice noticed, only by way of emphasis, somewhat like those in Apocalypse 12, 6, and 14, 20, 4, and 6. See my note to page 464 in and End of footnote. Secondly, that the period intended by the 150 days is, if I am right, 150 years. For I adhere to the principle of expounding a day as significant of a year. In the chronological periods of symbolic prophecy, a principle early suggested, as I have already intimated. Footnote, page 414, supra. End of footnote. And partially applied by certain old prophetic expositors of eminence, and subsequently and in more modern times adopted and fully carried out by Mead and most other English Protestant interpreters after him. An examination of the objections lately urged against it by Dr. S. R. Maitland and others will of course be necessary. This I reserve for my comment on Apocalypse 13 as the most fitting occasion for the present, I will only repeat my deliberate conviction of the truth of the principle and beg attention to the remark that, in its application, both here and elsewhere, it will be my care to allow myself no more license or latitude than such as we find distinct precedent and authority for in other scripture chronological prophecies, prophecies allowed on all hands to have received their fulfillment. This premised, we turn to the history of the Sarcenic warfare against Roman Christendom to see whether there be discernible in it any well-marked period of five symbolic months or 150 years defining what we may call the intensity of the woe, in other words, that of the irresistible aggressive movement of the symbolic locus, irresistible except with the reserve implied in the restriction as to effect already noted, and that of the full outflowing of the venom of their scorpion stings to wound and to torment. In the carrying out of which inquiry, the first question of course must be, from what act or event, as an epoch, to date the commencement of the period. And here, just as in regard of those two famous ancient prophecies, the one Jeremiah's, 
respecting the 70 years of the Babylonish captivity, the other Daniels, respecting the 70 weeks to the Messiah. Footnote, Jeremiah 25.11, Daniel 9.24. End of footnote. It is not one epoch only that suggests itself as that from which we might reasonably date the commencement of the period we speak of, but two or three. Thus did we know that when the first idea established itself in Mohammed's mind of preaching his new and false religion, that perhaps might be considered a fit epoch of commencement, as being the time when the key of the abyss was given to Satan. Footnote. Bishop Newton on Daniel 11 follows Predo in making A.D. 606 the year in which Mohammed retired to his cave to forge this imposture. End of footnote. Next, there was that of the year A.D. 609, when Mohammed began privately to preach his divine mission, and so before his family there rose up the smoke of the abyss, and yet again that of 612, when he first publicly announced his prophetic mission. Footnote. Gibbon 9, 255, 256, and 284. Almasin, History of the Saracens, page 3. Thus notes the chronology of these acts. Latin words. He adds afterwards, Latin words. Hence, his supposed prophetic call was in the 14th year previous to the flight of Medina, or since this flight gave date to the famous Mohammedan era of the Hegira, A.D. 622, A.D. 609. End of footnote. And so publicly caused the smoke of the pit of darkness to rise up before the eyes of men. Fourthly, there was the epoch of the year 629, when the locust armies first issued out of the smoke to make their attack on Syrian Christendom. Footnote. It is to be observed that the Christians in Arabia and along the Red Sea suffered previously to the year 629 from Mohammed's persecution. Those of Damat al-Jandal, as related by al-Janabi, page 147, referred to in The Modern Universal History, 1. 137. Some were Roman subjects. End of footnote. Now out of these four epics, I agree with Dabas in his selecting the third. I prefer to the two first because in regard to the term of duration of any public woe, we ought, I think, to have some noted public act and not anything merely private to mark both its commencement and its end and I am led to it in preference to the last, because the commencing epoch of 612 has, as we shall see, a suitable epoch of termination corresponding with it, whereas that of 629 has none. Footnote. Some object to the application of this principle for the determining of the commencing epoch of the woe. To myself, common sense seems to require it. 
On what other principle do we decide on the particular Persian edict of restoration? Whence to date the 70 weeks of Daniel? So too as to the 400 years of Genesis 15:13. Mr. Burks prefers reckoning for Muhammad's death and the cliffs Abu Bakr's accession, A.D. 632 to 782 when Hiram al-Rashid carried on a fierce and successful aggression on the Eastern Empire and concluded, he says, a treaty by which the empire was declared a permanent tributary to the cliff. I again refer the reader to some subsequent remarks on this point, page 464, and the double reckoning of the 150 years also preferred by Mr. Burks. End of footnote. It is to be observed that in the circumstances of this public opening of his mission, A.D. 612, there was then for the first time expressed that principle of propagating his false religion by violence and with the sword, which made his followers a woe to all the countries near them, and was specially a declaration of war on Christendom. Nay more, the organization might then be said to have begun, the destroying commission to have been given, and in the person of ally, whom Mohammed named the Lion of God, the locust form with its lion teeth and scorpion sting, to have been discernible in the smoke from the just opened pit. For what passed on that occasion? Who, said Mohammed after announcing his mission, will be my vizier and lieutenant? O prophet, replied Ally, I am the man. Whoever rises against thee, I will dash out his teeth, tear out his eyes, break his legs, whip up his belly. O prophet, I will be thy vizier. On which I find Mr. Hulam thus observing. Footnote, Middle Ages 2, 166 and 167. End of footnote. These words of Mohammed's early and illustrious disciple are, as it were, a text upon which the commentary expands into the whole Saracenic history. And just as in the case of the 400 years of affliction and servitude, predicted as to befall Abraham's seed, footnote Genesis 15:13, and a footnote, the epic of Isaac's mocking by Ishmael has by some been fixed on as that of the commencement of the period, because that, in that mocking laugh, there was manifested the spirit and the germ of what was more fully developed afterwards. Footnote. So by Dr. A. Clark Adlock, he compares Galatians 4.29. End of footnote. So, in the case before us, the epic of the announcement and first manifestation of the bitter, fanatic, persecuting spirit of Mohammedism against all opposers or even dissentients may as justly be fixed on as that of the commencement of the 150 years of the chief virulence of the Saracenic woe. After the year 612, says a modern universal history, Mohammed sought to propagate his religion with all his might. Footnote. Mohammed's celebrated letter to Khosros, the Persian king, enjoining him to acknowledge him as the apostle of God, 
and on his refusal and tearing the letter, declaring God will so tear the kingdom of Khosros, occurred as early as A.D. 615, according to Boland Lairs. See his life of Mohammed. Gibbon would place it somewhat later. Gibbon 8, 226. End of footnote. But supposing the epoch of the commencement of the world thus fixed, when may we consider that its five months period of intensity ended? Not evidently during the progress of the aggressive religious wars and victories of the Saracen Moslems. Not, that is to say, during the first prophetic month or thirty years from this commencing epoch of 612 in the course of which Syria and Egypt fell before them. Not during the second month in which month Cilicia was reduced to obedience, their inroads advanced to near Constantinople and the African province invaded. Not during the third month, that in which the subjugation of Africa was all but completed, or the fourth in which Spain was subdued and the south and center of France almost to war. Footnote. The Syrian war was from 632 to 638 A.D. The Egyptian from 638 to 640. The African began 647. The conquests of the Saracens suspended in Africa near 20 years were resumed 665 and in 689 advanced to the Atlantic. In A.D. 670, Cairo was founded, their African capital. The conquest of Africa was completed in a war from 698 to 709. That of Spain occupied them from 710 to 713. That of the south of France, from the Garonne to the Rhone, was effected 721. To the Loire, 731. The Battle of Poitiers was in the month of October 732. As it would seem, the date of Mohammed's public opening of his mission, A.D. 612, was an earlier month than October, perhaps July, at the beginning of the fifth prophetic month. So Dabas, pages 414 and 415. End of footnote. The earliest date for the end of the chief intensity of the Saracenic woe that can for a moment be thought probable is that of the Battle of Poctiris, already spoken of, in which Charles Martel defeated them and which occurred in October 732, the beginning of the fifth prophetic month. But though defeated, or at least repulsed, on that memorable occasion, footnote, it is now believed that the slaughter at the battle near Poitiers was by no means immense, and even that the Saracens retired without a decisive action. So Mr. Holom, note 14 to the supplement to his Middle Ages. He refers to Sismondi, 2, 132, Michelet, 2, 13. End of footnote. Their power and spirit to aggress and to torment with all the bitterness of fanaticism, was not terminated. The vanquished spoilers, says Moshim, footnote H-E-8-1-2-3-4-5-6-7-8, 
and two, and a footnote. Soon recovered their strength and ferocity, and returned with new violence to their devastations. In France, the strength and power of the Saracens was so far from being crushed that we find its southern districts continued in subjection to them till the middle of this century. Charles Martel besieged Narbonne, the chief town of the Saracens, in vain after the battle. Footnote. Michelet, History of France. End of footnote. In 739, he had to invoke aid from Lutprand, king of the Lombards, against the Saracens, who had taken all the chief cities in province and extended their ravages as high as Vienne, near Lyons. Footnote. This is stated in Paul Warnfried's History of the Lombards, and he says that Lutprand accordingly crossed the Alps to give the requested aid to Charles Martel. End of footnote. Nor were they finally driven out till some 15 or 20 years afterwards. Footnote. Pepin recovered Septimania and Narbonne not until A.D. 759. Sismondi 2.59. End of footnote. In Spain, the tide of their success and supremacy, notwithstanding the ill success of their efforts at totally extinguishing Paleo and the Gothic remnant, had not yet begun to ebb. Footnote. Flory, History Ecclesiastical, 9, 297. Gives from Sandoval, page 87, the substance of a treaty between an Arabian chief, respecting which see Cornwall Lewis on the Ramont, page 118, and the Goths and Romans of Combra in Portugal, fixing the tax to be paid by them for permission to live as Christians, a treaty of the date, A.D. 734. End of footnote. In Africa, some twenty years after the Battle of Poitiers, the torment of the scorpion sting was so operated as to induce nearly the whole Christian population of the province to apostatize and become Muslim. Footnote. In A.D. 750, a lieutenant of Africa informed the caliph that the tribute of the infidels was abolished by their conversion. Given 9, 495. End of footnote. From east to west, throughout the vast Mohammedan world, one caliph still governed the locust hordes in the name of the Prophet. Their power remained unbroken. But just about the middle of the 8th century, a change occurred, marked by two events of such a nature and such importance as to be regarded by historians, both the one and the other, as constituting epics most memorable in the Saracenic history. The change was this. The Abbasides, descendants of a different family of the early followers of Mohammed in the year 750, supplanted the Amiyads in the Caliphate. And then what followed? First, the one and only survivor of the deposed and proscribed family escaped to Spain. And behold, he was there received, acknowledged, and established as a lawful caliph. This was in the year A.D. 755. So 
what length was the caliphate divided. There was thenceforth a cliff in the west in opposition to the cliff in the east. The Colossus says Sismondi that had bestrided the whole self was now broken. And he adds, This revolution did more for the deliverance of Europe from the Muslim arms than even the Battle of Poitiers. Footnote Fall of Roman Empire, Volume 2, page 92. He dates it about the middle of August. End of footnote. Such was the first notable result. Further, out of this change of dynasty, a second most important consequence followed in the East. The new Abbasidian caliph, dissatisfied with the Syrian capital, where his rivals and enemies, the Amiyads, had so long lived and reigned, determined on building another on the western bank of the Tigris, where a canal with the waters from the Euphrates joined it. Footnote. See the Modern Universal History, Volume 2, pages 277, 279, and 284, for a full account of the building of Baghdad, and with the original Arabic authority subjoined. The palace of Al-Manzor, and the oldest part of the city were built on the western or Euphratian side, the fort of Al-Modi on the eastern, round which the city afterwards chiefly gathered. So Benjamin of Tudela also reports the site of one of the caliph's palaces in his time, in 1170, as on an arm of the Euphrates. Travels, chapter 12. End of footnote. Just a few miles beyond the old Roman Euphratian frontier. It was in the year 762 that Al-Manzor there laid its foundations, and thither the government and head of the locusts then took its flight far eastward away from Christendom. This was the era, as Dabas well calls it, of the settlement of the locusts. Footnote. Davas, page 415. It is to Davas that we are indebted for this explanation of the 150 years. End of footnote. They no more roved, he said, in a body as before, in quest of new conquest, and so Dean Waddington, footnote, Church History 2:44. End of footnote. The Arab conquerors now settled tranquilly in the countries they had subdued. In fact, the ancient warlike spirit, at least in this eastern divisions, had ceased to animate them as of old. War, says Gibbon, was no longer the passion of the Saracens. Footnote 1041. End of footnote. The very name that the caliph gave to the new capital was but an indication of the comparatively peaceable character that was thenceforth to attach to the Saracens. It was named Medinet al-Salim, the city of peace. The era is further noted by historians as that of the decline of the Saracenic power. So Gibbon observes, footnote, Abidim, 36, and a footnote. In this city of peace, amidst the riches of the East, 
The Abbasides aspired to emulate the magnificence of the Persian kings. The luxury of the caliphs of the Abbasides relaxed the nerves and terminated the progress of the Arabian Empire. So too Mills in his History of Mohammedism, footnote, as referred to by Faber, Sacred Calendar 2, 285, end of footnote. The period preceding was that of the rise of the Saracenic power, that which succeeds of its decline and fall. And Halam, the Abbasides, never attained the real strength of their predecessors. Footnote, Middle Ages 2, 173, end of footnote. Nor must I admit to observe on the manner in which the very geographical position of the new capital contributed to the relaxation of the woe. For not merely with reference to maritime enterprises against it, as Mr. Halam suggests, footnote, Abidim 177, end of footnote, but with reference to military also, the distance of the new seat of government added to the difficulty and diminished the temptation. The locusts were no more in such immediate contact as before with Eastern Christendom. And now behold, instead of aggressive war on the part of the Saracens, aggression has begun against them, and victoriously too on the part of the Christians. In the West, under the son of Charles Martel, Narbonne, and Septimania, were in the year 759 recovered, and the Saracens driven beyond the Pyrenees. Footnote. See Sismondi 2.59 and the Universal History 22.393 Gibbon 10.27 Dates at A.D. 7.55 End of footnote. Again in 7.61 as Baronius marks the date. Footnote. Others gave the date A.D. 7.57 End of footnote. The Christian remnant in the mountains of Spain under the first Alfonso began to roll back the tide of war on their Saracen oppressors. It was the same in the east. There Constantine Capronimus, the then reigning emperor, seized the opportunity for avenging the wrongs and enlarging the limits of the Greek Empire. Footnote, given 10.52 how strange, when such were the facts, the statement of Dean Woodhouse, that the progressive conquest of the Saracen Mohammedans continued more than double the length of the period of 150 years. End of footnote. So that the centenary of years began A.D. 755 and ending 762 is obviously every way remarkable as the period of the deliverance of Christendom from the chief terror and persecution of the Saracens, and either its year of commencement, 755, or that of its termination, 762, is just the fittest epoch, so far as I see, the one or the other, at which to consider the intensity of the Saracen woe as terminated. Footnote. Andreas, I observe, also suggests two periods, the first of greater intensity. See my sketch of his exposition 
in the History of Apocalyptic Interpretation, Volume 4. End of footnote. And what then the length of the period of intensity and aggression thus defined? It is possible that the exact time when the idea was first formed by Mohammed of acting the part of false prophet and when thus the key was used wherewith to open for him the pit of the abyss may have been about the year 605. Footnote. Predo and Newton say A.D. 606 as observed page 457. Note 2. End of footnote. Four years before his private preaching and so have furnished a date of inceptive commencement corresponding with the year 755 as that of the inceptive termination. But the epoch of decided commencement may rather be fixed, as we have said, at Mohammed's public opening of his mission, A.D. 612, and the epoch of full termination as regarded the Greek Empire at least, to which in this and the next trumpet there seems all through a special reference at the removal of the Caliphate to Baghdad, A.D. 762. Indeed, there is in the next vision, as it seems to me, a direct allusion to this removal as constituting an epoch recognized and marked out for notice in the apocalyptic prophecy. And the interval between these dates of commencement and termination is, as the reader sees, precisely that laid down in the prophecy, namely, five prophetic months or 150 years. And now we have discussed, I think, all the prophetic details and seen their truth and their fulfillment, more especially as characterizing the Saracen woe during its term of chief intensity, the above-mentioned 150 years, a discussion thus somewhat discursive and which has forced us, like the historian of the decline and fall, though all in relevancy to his and our great topic, into inquiries respecting the genius of the Arabian prophet, the manners of his nation, and spirit of his religion. Footnote. The genius of the Arabian prophet, the manners of his nation, and the spirit of his religion, involved the causes of the decline and fall of the Eastern Empire and our eyes are curiously intent on one of the most memorable revolutions which have impressed a new and lasting character on the nations of the globe. 9. 218. End of footnote. It is to be remembered, however, that this period did not define the whole duration of the Saracen power or woe. Footnote. In proof that the woe had not wholly terminated yet that its character in respect of aggressiveness, strength, and bitter religious venom against Christians was very different from what it had been before. I may refer the reader to the history of the Abbasidian Caliphs from after their removal to Baghdad in the Modern Universal History, Volume 2, Mohadi's War, A.D. 781, against the Greek Empire was, as Gibbon says, 1052 Retributive. End of footnote. It was but, I conceive, a marked primary period within the whole period of this fifth trumpet vision. 
Just like another noted, the parallel is observable as a primary marked period of the second woe under the sixth trumpet. Footnote. Apocalypse 9.15 An hour and a day and a month and a year. End of footnote. And as it seems fitting that we glance, ere we quit the subject, at what remained of the history of these apocalyptic locusts after the ending of their first 150 years and memorable flight beyond Euphrates, which later history of them was one of a period during much of which the woe on Christendom might seem to have been almost bound, and bound, as I have already hinted, at as foreshown in the prophecy, and shall in my next chapter have more fully to notice by that selfsame Euphratian locality. There then, far east in Baghdad, and the country round it, after a brief temporary splendor, and temporary revival too into military enterprise and success, though not the enterprise of aggressive warfare, from 781 to 805, under the reigns of Mohadi and Haram al-Rashid, wherein the Greek emperors who had provoked it suffered painfully. Footnote. That these were not aggressive acts on the part of the Abbasidian caliphs, but retributive is expressly stated by Gibbon, 10, 52, 54, and 55. He says, in the bloody conflict of the Amiyads and Abbasides, the Greeks had stolen the opportunity of avenging their wrongs and enlarging their limits. But a severe retribution was enacted by Mohadi, the third caliph of the new dynasty. An army of 95,000 men under his son Haroun al-Rashid, after desolating Asia Minor, appeared A.D. 782, to the terror of the Empress Irene, opposite Constantinople, who bought favor by the promise of a tribute. As often as they, the Greeks, declined the payment of tribute, they were taught to feel that a month of depredation was more costly than a year of submission. So when Nisiphorus, on his accession, added to his refusal to pay the defiant message, Irene submitted to pay a tribute, restore the fruits of your injustice, or by the determination of the sword. So again afterwards, when Nisiphorus felt encouraged to violate the peace, in every case during these wars of Haroun al-Rashid against the Romans, which given 10.52 dates as from 781 to 805, the aggression, or Greek word, was on the part of the Greeks. And so too, on the only other occasion recorded by Gibbon of the Saracens of Baghdad invading Greek Christendom, namely in 838, when Amorium was destroyed by the Caliph Motassim. Moreover, in every case, these were but desolating inroads, not territorial conquests. From what has been said, the unfitness of Mr. Burke's terminating epoch, A.D. 782, of the first 150 years of the Saracenic War will be, I think, apparent. It includes the 20 years before 782 when the Greeks were successfully aggressing on the Saracens, not the Saracens on the Greeks. It makes the War of 781, 
782, one of the Saracenic aggression, when it was one of retribution. Once more, it draws the line of division at 782, in the middle of Heron's wars against the Greeks, which wars given classes together as continued from 781 to 805. And a footnote. We must think of the once terrible power of the Saracens as declined and declining. Luxury and licentiousness working their usual sure process of decay with both prince and people, and a fervor of religious fanaticism passed away. At length in the year 841, the reigning caliph, distrusting the martial spirit of his Arabs, hired a band of 50,000 Turkmens from beyond the Oxus to be the support of the caliphate at Baghdad, and these, acting precisely the same part as the Roman Praetorian guards before them, revolted against, insulted, humiliated, and deposed the caliphs, and so, in this case too, became a further and powerful accelerating cause of their sovereign's downfall. Meanwhile, among the Muslims both in Africa and in Asia, the example of the Spanish schism had had its imitators. At Fez and Tunis, in Egypt and in Syria, in Khorasan to the north and Persia to the east, new and independent dynasties were set up in the course of the 9th century, until at length, as the 10th century opened, the Fatimites, descendants of the ally, Mohammed's first vizier, of whom we have before spoken, footnote, page 458, supra, and a footnote, and of his wife, Fatima, Mohammed's favorite daughter, asserted their rightful claim not to independent political sovereignty only, but even to the caliphate itself, and the prosecution of this claim reduced Africa, Egypt, and Syria, and from Cairo as their capital became known as the Third Caliphate of Islamism, excommunicating and excommunicated by its rivals, both at Cordova and at Baghdad. Thus more and more dismembered, the Abbasidian Caliphate at Baghdad more and more languished, until the Persian independent Muslim dynasty of the Baalites, interposing on occasion of the factions there prevalent, advanced in the year 934 to Baghdad, stripping the caliph of his secular office and supremacy and reduced him to his spiritual functions as chief pontiff of Islamism, the mere phantom thenceforward of departed power. The four angels continued bound, as it were, and that for a long in action by the Euphrates. Such was the progressive decline of the eastern Saracens, and in that decline their brethren in the West in a measure participated. Throughout the ninth century, the Christians of Spain were ever gaining ground on their Moorish oppressors. In 904, the capital of Asterius was advanced from Oviedo and the Galician Mountains to Leon, and that of Aragon from Jaca in the Pyrenean Valleys to Pampeluna. The spirit of bravery and enterprise indeed had not yet left the western Arabs. It appeared in the Spanish battlefields. 
It appeared in the exploits of the marauding bands that issued both from Spain and Africa, of whom some, ere the middle of the ninth century, conquered the islands of Crete and Sicily, attacked, though vainly, Rome itself, nor were expelled from their conquests till after a tenure of above a century in Crete and two centuries in Sicily. Footnote. Crete was seized by Saracens from Spain, A.D. 823, regained by the Greek emperor Nisiphorus Phocas, A.D. 960. Sicily was attacked by Saracens from Africa, A.D. 827, subdued, 878, reconquered by the Normans from the Greek Empire, A.D. 1060-1090. Rome was attacked by the Saracens from Sicily, A.D. 846, repulsed by Pope Leo IV, A.D. 849. End of footnote. But these were but like the marauding enterprises of the Normans of the 11th century, indeed not so remarkable. The strength of the lion's teeth and the venom, too, of the early religious fanaticism was greatly wanting. Footnote. In proof of the former point, we may illustrate from the facts of both the Cilician and Roman campaigns. To effect the conquest of Sicily, it cost the Saracens above 50 years, namely from A.D. 827 to 878 notwithstanding the weakness of the Greek occupants of the island to resist them. Again, the attack on Rome was but a marauding attack, which even the weak papal government, aided by some Greek ships from Geisha, Naples, and Amalfi, were able to repulse. So given, the old design of conquest and dominion was degraded to a repetition of predatory inroads. 10.61 Please continue listening on tape number 2. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.